Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, October 25th, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 23rd are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,610, that's 15610. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,612, that's 15612. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Miracles Found Through the Steps. The 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink for us compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. In other words, the 12 steps can keep us, as compulsive overeaters, abstinent and happy. What is this but a miracle of healing as a result of the implementation of each of the 12 steps? Through following the spiritual directions and practicing these steps, we have a spiritual awakening about which there is no question. There is no doubt about it. We are moved to a new state of consciousness and being in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. The results of a spiritual awakening are dramatic, although they may take place over a long period of time. They include changed perceptions, attitudes, and behavior. What distinguishes the 12-step process from self-help programs is that this change These miracles require intervention by a power other than ourselves. This change, this transformation, is done to us, not by us, although, of course, it requires our cooperation. The sunlight of the spirit deep down inside us is allowed to finally shine up and through us. Joining us today to share her journey and experience of these 12 steps is Alana Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Detroit, Michigan. Alana has been trudging this road of recovery for seven years and is eager to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. And it's with great appreciation and pleasure to welcome Alana to the line this morning. Good morning, Alana. Hi. Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much to Leah and all of the loyal servants on this line. There's a famous saying that it takes a village to raise a child, and it definitely takes a village to raise me. And all of you are my village. You are all God's angels sent to me to get me back on my feet. I owe so much to this meeting and to all of you, and I would like to thank especially all of the special edition speakers. I rarely miss a week, and I learn so much from all of you. I actually take notes on your shares, and um, 
You may not hear me live on Vision because I attend a different meeting that follows the same format earlier in the morning due to my work schedule, but I do listen to recordings. Um, and I was at the first two Vision for You weekends, so some of you may remember me from that. In humility and gratitude today, I want to share my personal miracle of spiritual transformation in the hopes that my story can resonate and spread hope the way that your stories did for me. I'd like to start with a small prayer that I also say in my formal prayers daily. God, open my lips so my mouth can speak words of praise to you. I'd like to now say another prayer that is familiar to many of you from that wise philosopher named Sweetie Bird. Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. I've not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I have not whined, complained, cursed, or eaten any chocolate. I've charged nothing on my credit card, but I'll be getting out of bed in a minute, and I think that I will really need your help then. This prayer, my friends, describes well my former life and disease. Okay, I didn't curse and I wasn't nasty, but all the other character defects I was guilty of. And the worst part was I didn't know how to stop as much as I wanted to. Until I worked through these 12 steps that blessed me with the miracle of recovery, and today I'm a different person. Though I'm not perfect, the promises of this program have come true for me one day at a time through daily work. So first, a bit of history, and then I'd like to share a few thoughts on each of my beloved 12 steps. I was born to wonderful, loving parents in an Orthodox Jewish home. I had a brother and a sister that I'm still close to today. I was taught from birth to have faith in a loving God, and I did. My father was a rabbi who was teaching with his degree, and I later married a man who became a rabbi, a congregational rabbi. I had a lot of genetic obesity in my family, and most of the women in my life, whether family or family friends, were very heavy. And I thought even when I was little that that was my fate as well. I remember despairing over it at a very young age. Looking back at childhood photos, I was cute and within a normal weight, but I was already throughout elementary school upset, feeling very fat. I had only diet food and healthy food in my house, as my parents did not want us to join the familial obesity. And I remember classmates calling me the garbage disposal as I would eat everyone's snacks who didn't want their snack. When I went to babysit, I'd always look first for the sweets that I could sneak. In fifth and sixth grade, I was bullied for not wearing the nice, cool clothes, for being too religious, and for being a brainy nerd. In seventh grade, I switched to a new school that was an all-girls school, hoping for some friends. Two months after I switched, a tragedy happened for me and my family. My father had always been a teacher in my former school. However, he had to leave the school at one point, and he went into the diamond business. About a year into his new business, he dropped me off for school one morning and left to go out of state to meet a buyer and sell some diamonds. He told me when he dropped me off, he would be back the very next day. He would only be away one night. That was the last time anyone in our family saw him. The man he met murdered him for his diamonds. However, it would be five years till this man was caught and there was any evidence. For five years, it was a disappearance case, complete with police, FBI, newspapers, media attention, ugly rumors, and we had to live um, on charitable contributions because there was no life insurance as there was no evidence. 
In fact, it was almost on Unsolved Mysteries when the case, thank God, and the murderer was found. For me, my beautiful life stopped, and it was terribly sad. I lost my wonderful father, who was a blessing to everyone who ever knew him, the most loving, kind man you could ever hope to meet. During that first year of his death, I also lost both of my grandfathers and a close family friend who was like an uncle to me. So truly, every man I was close to died that year when I was 12. Aside from my depression, I had terrible anxiety, complete with panic attacks. Every time I heard a car on the road or heard the phone ring or was called to the office at school, I thought it would be news of what happened to my father. At first, I hoped, just like in the soap operas, that he would come calling or driving back. You know, people on soap operas always die and then come back. So <laughs> that's what I was hoping for. Then at some point, we all realized it had to be bad news, and I lived in fear of hearing it. At that time, I turned to God and to the teachings of my Torah, which is, I guess, loosely translated as Bible. I realized he was my father, and he would carry me through this hardship, and I became more religious. Unfortunately, I didn't know what to do with my sadness and my panic, and for that, I started to rely on food for comfort, and my first binges began. This is a progressive disease, so I managed to maintain a normal weight by going up and down 20 to 30 pounds by yo-yo dieting with my first diet at age 15. I married a wonderful man at age 21. Uh, We're still married 26 years later. I always say they taught him well in husband school, as he never said a word to me about my weight, even as my disease progressed. In the early years of my marriage, I went through a year of therapy, followed by three months of a cognitive behavioral support group for anxiety to deal with all the trauma I had growing up that manifested in anxiety and panic. Thank God it really helped me and I was relieved of anxiety. However, there was only one recommendation I did not follow while taking the course. I was told to stop all intake of sugar. Apparently sugar, even 20 something years ago, was felt to be bad for anxiety. You know, go figure, who knew that? but I wasn't ready to give it up then. In nine and a half years, I had six beautiful children and one miscarriage. After all of that, I came to where I was right before program. My youngest was two. I weighed 187 at five foot eight and all my old tricks were not working. Sugar Busters diet, South Beach diet, Weight Watchers on repeat. I could not stand any program for more than a week to 10 days. Even though I was able to earlier, this is a progressive disease. I then witnessed a strange phenomenon. When uh, in the large city where I lived at that time, one woman after another in my community suddenly lost their extra weight. And what was more amazing is they looked even happy while not eating. It turned out they were all doing OA, and I'm a slow learner. I had to ask them about it and hear about it for three years before trying it myself. Even when I first tried it after going to a meeting or two, I decided I would just do the food plan without the actual program. After all, I already have religion. I have a God I'm close to. I don't need a spiritual program. My goodness, I was giving classes on faith and happiness in my husband's synagogue. So I didn't need this. What is this? Is this a cult? It made me feel uncomfortable. Besides, I told myself, or you could say my disease told me, I'm not really a food addict. I just have 40 pounds to lose, not 100. I never finished a whole pan of anything. I never ate from a freezer or a garbage or ate burnt food. 
I would just graze all day and occasionally hide and binge, but not enough that I would actually be caught. I was definitely hiding. Working the food plan alone of OA lasted how long? Guess. Yes, a week to 10 days, just like all my other failed attempts. I then told myself I would try one more time to go back on a former diet, and if I couldn't hack it, I would have to go back to OA and do everything I was told. I couldn't deny that it worked magic for my friends. Shortly after, I started my journey in OA 13 years ago. At the time, I had enormous willingness. I was even willing to admit what I knew in my heart, that I was a food addict and a compulsive overeater. I knew if I continued on my path, this progressive illness would cause me to do all those behaviors I had not done until now. It would cause me to, yes, go up even more than 40 pounds, but up to 100, 200, who knows how far I would go. And I knew it would bring me heartache, disease, and death. There's a saying that God gives the medicine before the disease and the most difficult years of my life were above, ahead of me, ahead of the time I came into program. A program was always a lifeline for me of support and sanity. In nine months, I lost all my extra weight. I came in for the vanity. I'm definitely still here today due to the sanity. But at the time, I came in for the vanity and the form of program I came into emphasized the tools rather than the steps. And I was taken through the steps very slowly. Don't get me wrong, the tools are important. They are a banister that help you get up the steps. But without fully completing the steps, recovery is not possible. At the end of my first year on program, I was only up to step four, and I had a humongous notebook full. At that time, my husband lost his job, and we had to leave and find a cheaper state as we were in California. My second to youngest, who had been in the NICU for 10 days, was diagnosed at age two with cerebral palsy, and his challenges were growing as well. Somehow, I stopped working on the steps with my sponsor and just kept my food plan during that move and my morning meeting, which at time was the coffee break meeting and eventually was a vision for you. I was with that vision for you since the beginning. Well, as many of you can guess, I was a dry drunk with many character defects as there is no recovery from meetings alone. Around seven years ago, I became obsessed with food once more and I started eating favorite abstinent items that I was not putting on a scale, something I had never done mainly fruit, dried fruit, and nuts. That scared me, and I decided to do what I knew deep down I had to do for a long time. I found a sponsor who, found, who followed big book format and was a member of Vision for You. And first, we examined my food plan. From the start of my program, I abstained from sugar, white flour, and sugar substitutes. I weighed and measured my three meals a day with nothing in between. But looking hard at my plan, realizing I couldn't have any more what I was slipping on, nuts and dried fruit, except in certain circumstances with boundaries, like when I travel long distances. I, um, it was hard to give it up, but I kept asking myself, how free do you want to be? And I really wanted to be free. I then went through the steps, all of them, all 12 of them, as quickly as I could in around three to four months. Once I became a sponsor, I experienced a psychic change I'd never, I'd heard about, but I'd never really felt. I'll talk more about sponsoring later, but I cannot emphasize enough the importance of sponsoring and acts of service. Harlan taught me this is not an 11-step program, and for years for me, I was not living in step 12. 
I believe that recovery happens in our acts of service. I've heard John Kay talk about the importance of service from the very start of program. Even if you can't sponsor, from the very start, you can read steps at a meeting or help set it up or simply share. I'm a moderator once a week today for my home meeting or I do other acts of service as needed and share as needed. This program is sink or swim and our acts of service help us swim. I get a lot of calls from people who are struggling or relapsing. And I never hear that they were sponsoring two people on a live meeting every morning, living in gratitude, and suddenly they picked up food. What I usually hear is, I was in the middle of step four or about to do step nine, and I picked up food. So really get through your steps like your hair is on fire. Stay active and do service on meetings. And then you'll soon be sponsoring and you'll be swimming and easily gliding through this program. The psychic change for me is a life where I first consider God's will for me at every moment, how to serve him best, which always means how to serve those around me best as well. That is a true change from the selfish, self-centered focus of addiction. Today I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. I went from my highest at a size 1820 to an 810, from 187 pounds to my current 147 at 5'8". I can wear the same size every year and weigh the same at every doctor checkup. That's honestly the least of the benefits of this program and the one I think about the least. To me, I was cured of a horrific mental illness, an obsession that consumed all my thoughts and left little room for God and his will for me. All day, I would think about what am I going to eat? When do I get to eat again? Followed by, why did I eat that? How could I have eaten that? I'll never eat that way again. And the cycle would repeat on a constant, sad, tired loop. Today, I abstain not only from food, but from food thoughts, and it happens naturally. Not only do I not eat my trigger foods, but I'm happy not to have them, even as I bake cookies for my family. I don't need to white knuckle. This is a miracle I never experienced in any other weight loss program. Furthermore, I have serenity, and when I don't, I know how to get back to serenity without hurting myself or anyone else along the way. I'm not blocked from the sunlight of God's spirit, and I feel his presence guiding me. I ask him constantly in every situation what he wants me to do or say, and the answers come. So now I'd like to share a bit about my journey through the steps. From my perspective as a sponsor, as a sponsor, just some lessons I've learned along the way. This is not a how-to to to do all the steps. These are just some insights. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. This is the one step that really has to be a foundation. You have to understand in a deep and a powerful way that you're powerless over food and that your life is unmanageable. When I came into into program, my life looked manageable. I didn't fully understand this step. And I have people calling me today who are very confused on this point as well. So I want to clarify, what does it mean to be unmanageable? I was a speech therapist at the time with a master's degree working for myself in a successful private practice. I had a great husband and six beautiful children. Everything looked very manageable, but I was an internal mess. I could not manage my food and my weight issues. And they were robbing me of the joy I really should have felt in life. The second time I went through the steps, all the steps, seven years ago, I finally understood in a deep, visceral way 
what picking up my trigger foods would be like for me. It would be like shooting myself with a gun and saying, I might not hit a major artery, and you know what, I can always start again tomorrow. For me to pick up and eat sugar or white flour today would be just as absurd. I know I have another binge in me, but I just don't know if I have another abstinence in me. One reason people continue to pick up is that the disease, or Fred, as John Kay calls it, I like to call it that as well, Fred convinces people this addiction is not so terrible. I've had people call me, and I, you know, they're calling me, they're asking me for help. They start telling me about their problem, their food problem. And in the middle of the conversation, they start trying to convince me why they don't need to do away, that their husband loves them anyway, and what's the big deal? I don't know if you could say, really, I'm an addict, and even if I am, it's not like it's drugs. I'm hearing all this denial, and I'm thinking, hey, you called me for help. I don't even know you. Of course, there's a problem here. Like, why did you call me? (laughs) This is what I'm thinking. So here's the step where you have to be honest with yourself. Even if you're not honest with anyone, you just really have to be honest with yourself. You have to realize the devastating effect of this illness in your life and of the life of everyone who knows you. And this is what you do in step one. You write down your worst moments in the food, all the terrible physical and mental anguish it brought you. What behaviors did you do that make you cringe to think about? What did you eat? How much of it did you eat? How did you feel after that binge? This truth will set you free. I get calls from people who can't get started because they cannot call themselves a food addict or compulsive overeater. They might be 80 to 100 pounds overweight or they might be thin, but they can't stop binging and then starving, dieting, or purging. It can happen either way, but they just still can't see their addiction. I think this is what the big book means when it says on page 58, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Sometimes on these calls, people tell me, I don't want my family to know, my mother-in-law, my friends, whoever it is. I tell them when you go out, you could say you have a food allergy or you have a special food plan. You don't have to use the word addict with everyone you know. But don't lie to yourself. You have to know. You have to be honest that you have a food problem. And if the word addiction is too scary for you, so start off by calling it a food problem. Don't get stuck on the semantics. But you have to know there's a problem because once you know there's a problem, you can access the solution. For me, step one was such a relief. I was so happy to know I had a disease. It wasn't a lack of willpower. I wasn't a lustful, defective person. I had a disease like any other condition, like diabetes. But the best part was that as chapter two tells us, there's a solution. When I heard the doctor's opinion, it really changed my life. I read about a double whammy. First, I read about a physical craving that my trigger foods kicked in that made it hard to stop eating all those foods. Now that I always knew about, I could have been a nutritionist and talked to you about insulin resistance and the dangers of sugar. I just didn't understand why I couldn't stop eating sugar once I knew how terrible it was. But now I finally understood the second part of the double whammy. Not only is there a physical craving, but the worst problem is there's a mental obsession, so I could not stay stopped. And once I knew that, a light went on for me, and I was filled with hope. I recognized myself, and I knew if I have this problem outlined in the doctor's opinion, then the solution outlined in the book will work for me as well. As the big book tells us, self-knowledge is great, but it has to go deeper. Your mind, your heart, and your body 
all have to understand how awful this addiction is so that you can do the work of this program with a 100% commitment. Not only will will your head know not to touch your trigger food, but your hands will know not to go grab it. It'll be just through and through knowledge that's in your body. How bad is this disease? I work in a nursing home now as a speech therapist with short-term and long-term care. And I can tell you that all of the younger people who come to us, and some have to stay there for life. Um, And I mean in their 40s, 50s, 60s. I would say 90% of them or more suffer from addiction that led to their tremendous medical problems. Whether it's food, cigarettes, drugs, or alcohol, and for many of them, it is food. The physical effects are devastating. I always say there are God-made problems and man-made problems, and man-made problems always feel worse. As they are unnecessary, they cause regret and self-hatred. So if a fluke happens and something bad happens and it's no one's fault, such as your house flooding, let's say, it was a God-made problem, now you have to deal with it. But if you know that you took actions that hurt yourself, your body, your spirit, your emotional life, and the lives of those who you love, the self-hatred is terrible. It's terribly painful. There was a song that won a songwriting contest by a man named Iro that was picked up by the singer Macklemore. The song is called Shadow. And I want to share some of it today because I think it is striking in its imagery of how frightening addiction is. And I think it's spot on and true. So here's an edited version of the edited version. Got me straight up drinking from the barrel. I've been losing hours, singing sad songs underneath the gallows, running from my shadow, running from my shadow. I need relief. I need some peace. But the voices, they keep talking to me. I keep going to meetings. I pray every evening, but I can't escape my disease. Looking at me, staring in the mirror, look at the man staring back at you. Lie to yourself, lie to them, whatever helps, forgotten what's real. You think the secrets you keep stay between you and me, but the shadows attached to your heels. Been going to war with myself, I'm back on day two, forgot how hard it was. Staring at me for so long, I forgot who the target was. The shadow wants me to forget the pain, wants me to live in the guilt and the shame. So much that I have no choice but to die from the drugs or blow out my brain. Got two voices on both shoulders. I keep swinging till the fight is over. Running, I'm running, I can't get away. Chasing me down every night and all day. Running, I'm running, I can't get away. Chasing me down every night and all day. I keep running from my shadow. The imagery is spot on. Imagine you're in a battle and you're terrified. You hear your worst enemy approaching and you keep running. Your heart's pounding. You feel that any minute you'll be killed. So picture this scene. You're running and running and you hear the footsteps behind you and finally the enemy catches up, taps you on the shoulder and as you turn around to face your worst enemy, you see that it's you. You are your own worst enemy or as the song tells us, your shadow is, your disease is. So how can you escape your own shadow? How can you escape this disease? The answer is you can't. You cannot on your own. Your sick mind cannot cure your sick mind. You must put up your white flag of surrender and find a higher power who can. And that brings us to step two. Now let's look at step two. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This step was a challenge for me, as I always had a relationship with God. But I had to take a deeper look. And I realized something interesting. Although I would always pray and talk informally to God all day, I never once asked him to help me with my food problems. I didn't know it was an addiction, but I certainly knew I had a problem. 
I think I was so ashamed of my overeating and my binging, I didn't want God to notice it. I've been taught that God's presence fills the whole world, but he will only enter my life to where I let him in, and I did not let him into my kitchen. I had to take a deep look at all the areas, starting with food, where even though I always thought I had faith in God, really I was acting as if I was in charge and not him. I was following my desires and trying to control or change not only my food addiction, but also the people I loved and situations I couldn't control with no acceptance, without asking God for help or for what he wanted for me. Today, I surrender my food every morning. I also surrender my old belief that I knew best how my life should be. I surrender my fears, my character defects, how I think everyone should treat me, my own agendas, my sponsees, my job, everything, my children. I need to surrender all to him. I need to let God drive the car while I sit in the back seat. And yes, I take appropriate action in every area of my life and do the best I can, but I know the results are up to God today. Today, I let go and let God in every area. I was unclear, I realized, even though I had faith and religion, I always loved God, but I was unclear in the food. I was in a food fog, and I didn't have the headspace to properly learn and grow in my service of God. This program is not only not a contradiction to my religion, it has me taking the actions my religion always asked me to begin with that I never fully did until now, such as making very complete amends and doing a nightly review. It just clears the path so I can serve God the way that I was always meant to. And just like the man described on page 56 in We Agnostics, the same words could be uttered about me even though I always had faith since birth. The same words that were said about this agnostic man who came to believe. And those words were the barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. And for me, I would add, for the first time, I lived in continuous conscious companionship, even when in the kitchen with my creator. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. My sponsor gave me a wonderful suggestion that I now share with my sponsees that she got from her sponsor. She told me after my second step to start thinking about what does it truly mean to turn my life and will over to my creator. She suggested that to help me think about it, I should read up on what it means to enlist in the armed forces and to think about that. This is fitting with our battle analogy we just gave. I looked up and looked up some Navy SEALs mottos, and I heard some things we've heard in these rooms. The only easy day was yesterday. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. And my favorite, all in all the time. I read a nonfiction book about the life of Navy SEALs. And in all my research, I discovered once you sign up, you agree to follow your commander and all he demands without question. Your time is not your own. You can't go wherever you want and do whatever you want. You have to get up early and you have to work hard. Now, what if you knew that that commander was also your loving father who wants you to be all that you can be? His orders aren't arbitrary, but they will bring out the best in you, your fellows, and the world around you. Once I realized this in a deep way, I was ready to commit my life to him. I knew my first order of business was to recover, as God would not want me to be sick. And again, I thought since birth I was committing my life to him. But here I was taking this very seriously and really looking at my day. So I knew God wouldn't want me to be sick. I'm of no use to him and others when I'm mentally and physically ill. 
And if that means getting up extra early in the morning for my program, spending time helping sponsees and fellows, and doing some writing every day, hey, that's a lot easier than Hell Week for the Navy SEALs. We're in a serious battle against addiction. This is a daily fight. I need to look at the world around me and now serve it as God's agent. Once my addiction is down, I can do so with a clean mind and heart. So I admitted I was powerless in step two, that I could not run away from the shadow on my own. And in step three, I handed God the shadow. I committed to live my life for him and his interests and not for myself. I fully give to him and to his children. As I say in my prayer of Shema daily, my life, my soul, my possessions, my energy, my talents, whatever I have, I give over to him. Steps four and five, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, evident to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. These steps are so crucial. I've had sponsees tell me they don't want to do them. It brings up negative thoughts about others, and they'll start feeling bad about people again that they'd forgotten about. I tell them that's a great misunderstanding of what you're doing. It's not important what was done to you. What's important is your part. What did you do? How did you react? What were your lies and fears? What character defects were driving you? What's the truth about the situation? And how would God have you handle it? I have to say, my husband really taught me how to handle resentments, even though he's not on program. He was a congregational rabbi for 10 years, and he's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And that's what he does today. There was a person in our lives a number of years ago who was extremely spiritually sick, who actively set out to hurt us. And although we took all the steps necessary and even sought legal advice for protection, we did what he set out to do. And in the end, we had to move. At the time, I did a 10th step on it and continued to pray for him and his family daily, which I still do till today, as it was a strong resentment that was not leaving so quickly. I wanted to vent and talk to my husband about how awful this man was. I wanted to roll around in it. But my husband would not discuss it with me, and he told me wise words I take with me into every situation today. He said, don't be like Lot's wife. Don't look back on this. Well, I didn't want to turn into salt, and I knew I'm not allowed to gossip, so I couldn't talk to others about it. And you know what? Just not looking back at it and not talking about it, it really truly left me. I said to my husband a while back, I can forgive what he did, but I can't forget. And my husband said, you know what? It was God's will that event happened. Somehow it was for our best, and he was just an agent. Therefore, I can forgive, I can forget, and you know what? If he needed a favor, I would do him a favor. I was shocked into humility, realizing I had more work to do. P.S. I could tell you clearly today how that episode was for our best. Anyway, so now we know our part and how God would have us be. It's time to read our workout to another. I always have sponsors read the sick man's prayer about each person they resented before they read me their fifth step on the person. Found on page 66 of the big book. Um, we say we realize that the person who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, the people who wronged us. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We ask God to show us, we help, ask God to help us show the same tolerance, pity, and patience. We would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man or woman. How can I help him or her? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. I love this prayer and I don't leave home without it. I have it saved in my phone and it has saved me from resentment many a time. I do want to just add, not, do not get overwhelmed. So many people drop out of program by this step. 
Honestly, you do not have to write the 1,000-page memoir. It's not your life story. Write your actual resentments. Follow the simple directions straight from the big book. It is important to follow the advice on page 75 when you are all done. To find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. Don't skip this step. It's important. When I did this step, I realized that I had left out my most obvious resentment as it was painful and I'd actually blocked it out. Moving along to steps six and seven, we were entirely ready to have God move all these defects of character and we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. In the 12 and 12 of AA on page 63 on step six, it tells us this is the step that separates the boys from the men. I didn't understand that when I first read it and now I realize This is the step where I see myself growing up and maturing. I see my character continue to grow and improve. I'm a work in progress, and thank God he lovingly gave me a lifetime to work on myself. I was actually scared to take this step. I was scared it meant that I was committing to be perfect. As I've often heard on this line, this is a program of spiritual progress, not perfection. Or as I tell my sponsees, spiritual progress, not perfection, but your food needs to be perfect. Uh, meaning your non-abstinent foods have to be completely down. I had some, you know, some character defects and things that I wasn't sure I could completely give up and be perfect in. My sponsor really helped me by saying, why don't I ask God to help me make progress in my imperfect areas and to increase my willingness to serve him better? That gave me the deep breath I needed to work on these steps. I'd like to caution as addicts, we tend to beat ourselves up regularly with a baseball bat, and we might think here's a good time to do that, looking at character defects. But really, the opposite is true. We're offering ourselves to God. We don't want to offer him a piece of garbage. Really, what we want to do is realize that we have a godly spirit, that we are a son or a daughter of the king, that he gave us talents and health to serve him and his children and this beautiful world to partner with him in making this world better. And instead of doing so for myself, I needed to look at where my self-centeredness, lies, and fears got in the way. Now I should look at this as an exciting opportunity to remove them. Honestly, just living in abstinence removed at least half of my character defects from me. I used to comfort myself when I was fat by saying, oh, those beautiful thin women, I bet they're so egotistical. I'm sure they're full of themselves. But I'm humble because I'm fat. The problem is it was more self-hatred than true humility. And because I wasn't happy with myself, I was jealous of every naturally thin woman I know, and I was so self-conscious. I heard a great example of how unhealthy it is when you're self-conscious. The example is if someone told you, I feel my finger or I feel my tooth, you wouldn't feel those things unless they were infected and they were hurting. You shouldn't be thinking too much about yourself. If you are, it's just a sign that there's something wrong. And uh, I was hurting. I didn't like myself, so I felt myself too much. If you had the audacity to be beautiful and thin and rich, well, for sure you must be awful. But then when you were sweet, and I wanted to hate you, but I couldn't, I was really stuck. Now as a thin person, I'm actually less self-involved. I think about myself less. I don't feel better than or egotistical. I just feel normal now that I'm at a normal size. I don't think too much about me. I'm more interested, as the book promises, and God's will for me and my fellows. So what did I do to get here? So I wrote a list of character defects in in these steps and their opposite traits, and I prayed to God to help remove the negative and improve in the positive. For example, to remove my judgmentalness and increase my loving acceptance of others as they are. 
That's a general approach, but I've taken a really deeper look in this step. Not long ago, a family member went through a tragedy and had to move into my home for almost a year. I was constantly feeling hurt and slighted by her comments, and she didn't mean to hurt me. She loved me. She wasn't thinking, you know, and I had to just be kind no matter what I felt, you know, because this person was in pain and suffering. I could not make her pain worse by telling her about my slights. This was such a difficult test of my life, really, in terms of my character and personal behavior. What saved me was taking a very deep look at my my character defects, because in reality, what anyone else says should really not affect you. They should not have the power to affect you. And if they do and you feel hurt, you have to look at why. I realized that any time I get angry, annoyed, upset, or resentful about someone, I have to really closely look at what is the character defect I have that makes me angry, that's upsetting me. For example, um, the same person could criticize me twice. Once it wouldn't hurt, but the next time I would be upset. So if someone told me your house really needs updating, I wouldn't be hurt because I would agree with that and say, yeah, when I have money, I'll update it. But if they made a comment telling me your chicken soup is missing something, you should really add dill like how I make mine, then I might be hurt because everyone loves my chicken soup and I take pride in it. So now you hurt my ego. I also found when I'm upset at someone, it's usually because in this area, I'm either exactly the opposite or exactly the same. And I found that to be true for others. So timely people resent when others make them late, as that's an opposite trait. And then if someone like your child or friend of yours who's the most like you could sometimes annoy you the most, as you see in them traits you don't like within yourself. So I don't like that I'm slow at housework. Therefore, it annoys me when I see that one of my kids are. But if I don't stop and think deeply about why I'm annoyed, I won't even realize it. And then once I know what's wrong, I can let go of it and be loving once again. I'm in a never-ending process of improving my character, even my good traits. I look at to see what's motivating me. Is this really an act of kindness or is this me giving into my ego or am I making an investment? I'll be kind to them and then they'll be kind to me. I'd like to share something that really helps me in this work of my character defects. Some of the things I work on today are working on my patience, on listening to people even when I'm not interested in what they're saying. Definitely, I always work on pausing, especially when I'm triggered. A friend of mine in program, Michelle M. from Baltimore, taught me a wonderful trick that can save every relationship you have. Before speaking, especially when feeling triggered, I pause and say a prayer I learned from her. God, may my words be sweet. We all know what it feels like when someone's words are sweet or when they come out harsh. Aiming for God's help to speak sweetly really helps me in the stickiest situations. These are the victories that God celebrates in. These are our daily values, uh, battles that we can win. Steps eight and nine made a list of all persons we've harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ruth M. has a wonderful special edition on these steps. I highly recommend. And she tells us there are five important steps and a really good apology. So listen closely. First, she says, you must tell your friends that you're apologizing to exactly what your wrong action was. On the top of page 83, it tells us a remorseful mumbling of, I'm sorry, won't fit the bill at all. Next, you have to acknowledge that your behavior was harmful. Then you have to assume responsibility for the behavior and the harm you did. 
Then you have to admit your regret over your actions. And last, number five, you have to commit to not repeat the behavior and to make restitution as needed. After this apology, you need to ask if there's anything else you need to apologize for. It sounds so easy, right? Wrong. People are notoriously bad at apologizing. Usually they are missing at least half of these components. Often the apology is so bad it makes the relationship worse and not better. People resort to defensiveness, deflection, and denial just to keep their ego intact. In 1974, President Nixon famously apologized for the Watergate scandal in his resignation speech. How does this apology sound to you? I regret deeply any injuries that may have been done in the course of the events that led to this decision. I would say only that if some of my judgments were wrong and some were wrong, they were made in what I believed at the time to be in the best interest of the nation. I pretty much think he didn't follow any of Ruth M's advice in that. So why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to say you're sorry? So I've heard that when you apologize and you admit to someone that you're wrong, what's so hard about it is you might feel that now they are above you and they are better than you. You feel unequal. You feel they're up there and I'm down below now that I admitted to them all that I did to them. The irony is the exact truth is the is that the truth is the exact opposite. If I can verbalize a detailed, real apology with no ego, magically that's all I need to do to equalize the relationship, to make it whole and healthy again. But it has to be complete. If I apologize defensively and insincerely with no remorse and just try to get it over with, the relationship remains unequaled and it might be permanently broken. A really good, humble apology can bring us close once more to our fellows. It can change us, it can change our relationships, and it can change everything. Once when I was a teenager, there was a woman who was a friend of my, a family friend, a friend of mine's mother. She had a hard life and she had her issues, and as the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. So once I was in her house with my friend and I did something totally benign, something no one else would have noticed, she screamed at me quite abusively and I was very shaken up. I was around... 16, I think, at the time. I left then, and I didn't feel comfortable going back to my friend's house afterwards. I didn't feel safe to, even though I was invited back. Around seven months later, there was a ring at our door. It was right before Yom Kippur, the day of our, for Jewish people, of our national restitution. This woman came into the house, this woman of my mother's age, I'll never forget it, crying, sobbing, and telling me how wrong she was to have spoken to me that way, begging me to forgive her. She changed and I changed. Years later, when she was dying, I was able to go to the hospital and be with her, and we hugged and told each other how much we loved each other. I just want to add that living amends are the most important action you can take in this step. In the end of the day, apologies are nice, but people don't really care about what you say. They care about what you do, and we need to show others that we are different. Moving on to step 10, continuing to take a personal inventory and where we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So now our street is clean, we have to keep it clean, as the big book tells us on page 84, to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We, dis- we discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. I love this paragraph as it tells us when these crop up, not if. We can't escape being human, but now we have a way to deal with it. Notice how the first action is to say a prayer and ask God to remove them, these feelings. 
this is my first line of action. So if my boss tells me something alarming, my first action is to pause and say a quick prayer. God, remove from me the lie that my boss is in control of my sustenance. Help me know the truth that my livelihood comes only from you. Once I pray um, over a fear or a negative thought, it's often completely removed and no further action is needed. However, if someone hurt me and I keep replaying the hurt in my head, then I definitely need to call someone in program and do a 10-step, which is truly going through steps four through nine, and work through the resentment focusing on my part. The more I grow in acceptance and gratitude of others for who they are and how they are, the less of these resentments I feel, the less 10 steps I have to do, and the cleaner my street is. Step 11, sought through prayer meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I love this step. Formal and informal prayer, just talking to God throughout the day. I've been doing that as far back as I can remember. The moment I wake up, I thank God for believing in me and trusting me with another day. I don't drive my car till I ask God for a safe drive. I even ask him for help that whatever I'm cooking should turn out okay. What was new for me in program was meditation. It was one of the last pieces of my program I added, and I don't know why I kept putting it off. I love meditating today, and I tell my sponsees everything I was afraid of or I resisted or I did not want to do in programs, such as sponsoring, attending regular meetings, meditating. These are all some of my favorite moments of the day. Every morning, I say the divorce prayer on page 86, where I consider my plans for the day and ask God to divorce me from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives throughout the day. Then I do a 10 to 12-minute guided meditation, and on my Sabbath, where I don't use electricity on my phone, I guide myself to listen to my breathing. Meditating brings me a serenity I can later tap into when I'm stressed. It helps me live in the moment and in the day, and it reconnects me to the simple, indescribable joy in living. I've also grown tremendously in my formal Hebrew prayers and psalms over my years in program. Spending time learning them in a deep way, carefully reciting them with love and connection every morning and afternoon, a shorter version. At night, I send my food, my gratitudes, and my nightly review to my sponsor, answering the exact questions posed on page 86. I've learned from a sponsee of mine how to really utilize these nightly questions. Whenever I write down that I did have a negative thought or a resentment or a fear, I do the turnaround on it right then and there if I hadn't done it earlier in the day. So if I write, for example, that I had fear for my son's future, I write out right there a truth that God loves him more than I do and will always take care of him. And this brings me a calm before I go to sleep. During prayer meditation, using these tools, we plug in and open ourselves to God's direction throughout the day. This is the sixth sense. Mention in the big book on the bottom of page 85. We have our five senses, right? But our sixth sense is the sense of direction that God provides to us. And I know in my life, he sends me inspired thoughts, sometimes hints or winks. Sometimes when I ask him what to do, he practically pushes me over. His input's so obvious. Often little miracles happen that feel like a divine hug or kiss. One my mom had was on my dad's birthday. She was really missing him. They were born the same day, the same year, April 9th, 1947. And on the day she missed him, she opened up the junk drawer. And at the top of the drawer was a picture she had never seen before of my father with birthday hat on and all his second graders had thrown him a surprise party complete with a cake. And they were all looking up at him with love. What a gift. What a divine hug my mother had that day. Step 12, having had a res- 
spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. At the first Vision for You weekend, Harlan really lit a fire under my feet with his talk on sponsoring. Today is one of the great joys of my life. The line he said at the time was that to the world, I'm one person, but to one person, I could be the world. I thought of the sponsors I was blessed with and how much they gave me. I put off sponsoring, assuming I would never have time for that. Using again the battle example, the armed forces have a saying, no man left behind. As part of this swearing in, the army rangers commit and say, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall in the hands of the enemy. Well, my friends, the disease is our common enemy, and we cannot stand by and watch our comrades fall. Today, I work very full time. With travel, it could be 10 hours in a day. I have six children who need me, even though they're older, and I have many obligations. Yet, I'm sponsoring six people, three who are recovered, but three who are getting there and need more help through the steps. I say that just to encourage everyone out there that you can do it too. Get your feet wet. God's power is infinite. Trust in him. Do his will. Do what's right. And your power will be infinite too. I'm so proud of my sponsee's accomplishments. I'm so truly honored to help support them through their journey. There's so many beautiful moments we share as we feel God working through us and with us. Um, I, I have a beautiful story that demonstrates this. My, my sponsee had a dilemma. She didn't know if she needed to make an amends. There was a woman who, um, my sponsee never did anything wrong to her, never said anything wrong to her, but my sponsee had really helped out someone in this woman's family, and she was embarrassed from that, and so she would turn away and look away and wasn't acting nice to my sponsee. So my sponsee wasn't sure what she should do, and I uh, thought about it, and I asked her, when she acted that way, did you smile and say hello to her or did you ignore her back? So she said, yeah, I, I didn't make eye contact. I didn't look at her either Once she treated me that way. So I thought about it and I asked God what to do. And I felt that she should not um, have to say anything. She shouldn't have to make a verbal amends because she never did anything wrong. She never said anything wrong to this woman. But she should make a living amends because even if someone acts crazy to you, you should be nice and normal back. You should do the right thing. So I told her, your living amends are, next time you see this woman, smile and act friendly and, you know, say hello no matter what she does. So she said, you know, I never see her. I'm not in her neighborhood. I probably haven't seen her in more than a year. So I said, okay, let's pray about it and see what happens. The very next day she called me, so excited. She said, you'll never believe this. This woman was in a waiting room. I went to a doctor's appointment and this very woman was in the waiting room. I remember what we talked about, and I immediately smiled at her. And for the first time ever, she smiled back and acted friendly to me. God clearly sent them to meet each other the very next day. These are some of the miracles you can all be a part of that I found through the steps. Um, Do I have like a couple more minutes, Leia, or should I end now? Are you there? I sure am here. Yes, you have a few minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you, Leah. I just want to close with these four attitudes I learned in program that save me emotionally on a daily basis. The first is to live life one day at a time. At first, I used that just to white knuckle through a day without my trigger foods. Now I understand that living in the moment is a mindset that's incredibly transformative. It works in two ways. One way is when I'm going through something super hard, no matter how difficult it is, I only need to deal with what's happening right now today, and God will always help me and support me through today. 
But if I'm living in fear and anxiety about next year or next week or 10 years from now, I won't feel God's support and help because I'm worrying about imaginary issues that didn't help happen yet. So I have to focus today on today and God will always carry me through today. This attitude of one day at a time also works by adding joy to my life. I realize that our lives are just a composite of our days. And if we don't find ways to feel joy today, if we're just too busy being busy, we'll end up with a life that has no joy. So I recommend that everyone find three things that bring them joy and happiness and infuse their days with them. I have at least seven. They include prayer, meditation, learning Torah, which is, again, in formal words, um, my religion. I guess you could associate it with Bible, but my, my religious studies. They bring me tremendous joy. Spending time on the phone or in person with people I love, spending time outdoors, exercise, reading, and music. This is important for me, and it's important for us former addicts because many, for many of us, food was our go-to pleasure. It was so fleeting and painful afterwards. It wasn't even a pleasure. It's time to find new pleasures and live in joy and gratitude to God. The other attitudes I rely on is really helping other people when I'm in pain. When I'm in pain and discomfort, looking to help someone else takes me out of it every single time. It works really like a charm. The last two attitudes are my crutches that pull me up constantly, and those are acceptance and gratitude. I need to really accept everyone in my life and love them as they are for who they are and not try to change anyone but myself. And last but most important, really, I practice gratitude constantly, turning around every negative thought. If I'm not feeling good at work and I start to think, poor me, I don't want to be at work now, I immediately say, are you kidding me? You're so blessed to have a job. So many people don't have one now. And since Corona started, I can't clock in quickly when I get to work. I often wait in a long line to get my temperature taken. I started off feeling negative. Oh, I'm going to have even a longer day. And then I realized what a beautiful way to start my day, living in gratitude and thinking, wow, I don't have a temperature today. I'm not sick. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm well. I can go to work. It's a constant daily practice, and I send gratitudes daily to my sponsor, but I also exchange gratitudes with a group of women, and we all appreciate new things daily from hearing everyone else's gratitudes. It's a wonderful practice. The more detailed small-ticket items we're grateful for, such as the beautiful fall leaves, the more we feel God's blessings and love for us and the greater our joy. Those of you who have not joined us yet, Stop running from your shadow, abandon yourself to God, and come join us as we trudge the road to happy destiny. Thank you so much, and thank you, Leah. And thank you, Alana, for your beautiful testimony this morning and sharing your personal insights and experience with the application of the 12-step process, how it's impacted your life. Thank you very much. Quite a message of depth and weight. Today's your ID, Sunday, October 25th, 15,622. That's 15622. Alana's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can press star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the initial of your last name. Um, good morning. Um, this is Rochelle. Can I ask a, a question to make a statement? Uh, questions only. One moment, please, Rochelle. Who else? Cheryl H. Cheryl H. Carol H. Stacy W. Oh. Christine G. Brenda A. 
Christine G. Gotcha, Christine. Okay, Sandy W. Yes, Sandy W. I have Rochelle M., Carol H., Sandy W., Christine G., Brenda. Uh, how do I re- unmute, How do I mute myself? I'm sorry. Star one. Anyone else like to be in this grouping? Bev J. Bev J. Okay, we'll begin with Rochelle M. Again, please, questions only in the interest of time. Thank you. Go ahead, Rochelle. Okay, so um, oh, I still have a statement in the big book about uh, we're like men who have lost their legs and they're not going to grow back again, something like that. I can't quote it exactly. I don't know exactly where it is in the big book. But my experience in program is that um, I have something now that I've never had before, which is, and I've been in program now 12 years, um, and absent, thank God, um, continuously, and that is, I didn't used to have a sense of uh, satiety when finishing a meal, and I could eat forever. At least that's the feeling that I had, or at least until my tummy hurts. But I no longer have that, and I now have a sense of uh, enough. So the question is, is yes, that thank you. is Good that question. within the context? Is that in, within the context of um, not growing new le- growing new legs or not? I know that's clear. Um, I feel like growing new legs. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure of the question, but um, I. I. I guess I could just. Yeah, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not exactly sure of the question. Um, is one of the outcomes of of the program that one can grow new legs, meaning one who never had a sense of having enough now has a sense of enough when it comes to food. Well, absolutely, but I I am a different person because I don't know if I ever had that before. So it's not like I went back to something I used to have. I have something now I never had before, which is that food's not calling my name. It's not pulling me. It's not touching me. And I tell my sponsees, I'm glad you brought up feeling satiated. There's a miracle in this food plan that I have that once I weigh and measure my food and I put it all in front of me and I sit down the way a daughter of a king should sit down to eat, um, no matter, even if my disease tells me, oh, this isn't enough and oh, you'll still be hungry, it doesn't matter. I eat slow and calm and seated, a miracle happens and I really feel satiated until my next meal. It's just a beautiful thing. So thank you for your question. And thank you for, for all your service, Rochelle. Thank you very much, Rochelle. Carol H., your turn. Good morning. Good morning, Leah. Uh, good morning, Alana. Thank you very much. I got so much from your share. Uh, my question was something I jotted down earlier when you were speaking, early in your talk. So I may already have some ideas of what you might say for the answer, but you mentioned something about now today when I'm not feeling serene or I don't feel serenity, I know exactly what to do to get back to that. Can you um, list a few things that you do specifically to get you back into a state of serenity? Yeah, what a great question. Thank you, Carol. I don't even think I mentioned all of them. One thing I do is, and this is so important, and and I tell this to my sponsors, I endorse myself for feeling pain. So when I feel pain, I allow myself to feel it. I give it to God. I know he's with me in it. And I literally say to myself, good for you, Ilana. You can feel pain and you don't have to numb out. You don't have to 
do anything self-destructive. You don't have to eat over it. You can feel pain and be okay and give it to God and ask him to help you with it. I just think that's so important. And you know what? When you can feel pain, you can also feel joy. I can feel, I walk outside in this beautiful world and I feel like a baby seeing everything for the first time. It's so magnificent and so high tech, the colors to me, the fall colors, my flowers, everything, even the, the, my food, you know, it's just beautiful. And I feel like God created so much beauty. And when I was in a food fog, I couldn't see it. And some of that is the numbing out. So I was numbing out the pain, but I was numbing out the pleasure too. Um, and then the other things I spoke about, which are acceptance, gratitude, those two things can almost help you out of absolutely everything, acceptance and gratitude and helping someone else in pain, not even mentioning your struggle. Sometimes I almost laugh because I could be going through something major and I could be calling someone who's dealing with something minor, but just being empathetic to them and helping them with it, I actually feel relieved and they don't even know what I'm going through. And it almost feels like ironic, but it's just hugely helpful. So helping others of course, doing a 10-step when I need to. Um, and just, you know, you do need that moment of empathy when you're going through something hard. So finding someone you love and trust that will help you have a good perspective and getting that empathy you need is also really human and important too, I think. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Carol H. Thank for the you. question. Sandy W., your turn. Oh, thanks, Leah. Thanks always for your service. And Alana, what an amazing um, presentation. I learned so much. Um, my question is this. You know, my boys were grown when I um, recovered, when I worked through the steps and now being recovered. So I have a lot of free time to dedicate to program, which is such a joy and a blessing. Um, but I work with women who have um, kids that they're raising or um, yeah, basically that they're raising as they're trying to work the steps as well as live a recovered life. So I was in all of you saying you have six kids, and I'm curious what ages they were when you were working through the steps. And just if there's any um, any tips, any, you know, how you sponsor other women that have very, very busy lives like, like yours obviously was, um, if you could just expand on that a little bit. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. And even today, even though my kids are older, um, you know, when I finally come home from work, it's just not fair to anyone for me to then be on the phone. So I really don't do nighttime calls, evening calls. Um, But I would say really from the beginning, I had to have a morning routine, which was early, which was before the kids were up. Um, You know, and, and like I said, I started a program when I was two and I was doing a lot when my baby was two and I was doing a lot then. When I came back into program, my baby was seven, but I was still a busy mother and I was working full time. So really, a lot of my program work is early morning and nighttime. Nighttime is my own personal work because I don't really do phone calls when family's around. Um, my own personal writing and sending to my sponsor. As far as the step work, what I tell my sponsees, you know, I give them assignments and I tell them, take 15 minutes a day. And you know, and I really have goals for them. Try to finish, you know, there's certain steps I feel like they can do in one week with their assignments and some like the fourth step that I might give them three weeks to a month. But most of them should be done in one to two weeks. But I tell them really take 15 minutes a day and do your best and then we'll see where we're at at our next, you know, phone call about the steps in a week. And uh, and I tell them if your life is such that you don't, it's better for you to work out, let's say, an hour and 15 minutes on one specific day that you get a babysitter or you go to the library or whatever 
and you can't just do it every day a little bit, like whichever way works better for you. And I know at times in my life when I was going through it, I had to take a chunk and have the babysitter have whatever and do that chunk. Um, at other times it worked for me to just say, when everyone's sleeping, I'm going to do 15 minutes. So, the, you know, the main thing is you'll be shocked and tell this, you could tell it to your sponsors. I had so much more time in my life when I wasn't pursuing food and looking in cupboards and looking in the kitchen. <laughs> it just opens up windows and windows of time when you have three meals and nothing in between. So no matter how much time program takes, it honestly takes less time than people think it does. And it takes way less time than thinking about food all day. So thank you for the question. Thank you, Sandy W. Christine G. Star one to unmute. Thank you so much. I loved your lead. I got a lot out of it. And thank you, Leah. Um, this is my first time sharing. I'm so excited. My sponsor said if you didn't share, you weren't there. And here's my question. My question is, how did you go about finding a food plan or do you have a food plan? That's a great question. Um, yeah, my, my first sponsor gave me a food plan. It's a pretty standard food plan. A lot of people are on an OA, but she was smart about it. She, you know, she gave me assignments of when to weigh in and see if it was working for my body or not. And I had to reduce the food a couple times. Um, and it was pretty well balanced. But I do recommend to my sponsees to double check with a nutritionist and one who is sensitive to understanding that there are certain foods they're never allowed to eat. Like we'll come up with what are they not allowed to eat and then see if a nutritionist can help them, you know, make sure it's a good food for them, for their height and for their weight because I'm not a nutritionist and I don't want to take responsibility. And maybe they have a health issue that I'm not aware of, you know, that they should find out about and include that kind of direction in their food plan. And sometimes they come to me and they already have a food plan. It's already working for them and, you know, I'm helping them in other ways. So with that, I pass. Thank you, Christine G. Brenda A., your turn. Good morning, and thank you all for your service. Thank you, Alana, for an extraordinary share. Um, I have a question. You had mentioned Ruth M. Special Edition, which I will go back and listen to, and you said there were five key points, and I'm would you be able to reiterate them briefly? Um, yeah, I can do that. Let me have to like look back here and find that. Yeah, you refer to page eighty. Um, I don't. I don't know if that was listed on a page. I don't think so. Okay. Um, one second. Here we go. Okay. It's so interesting because the same five points have been mentioned in scientific, you know, psychology books of today on how to apologize. Mm -hmm. And and I've seen the same five points mentioned hundreds of years ago by Maimonides. So there's definitely a wisdom to apologies, and it seems to be a universal wisdom. So her five points are number one, repeating to your friend exactly what your wrong action was, so being specific. Okay. Number two, acknowledging your behavior was harmful. So using the words, you know, I hurt you or I harmed you. Number three, assuming responsibility for your behavior and the harm you did. 
And this is important because I notice people saying, I'm sorry you were hurt, instead of saying, I'm sorry I hurt you. And there's a huge difference there. And what we're supposed to be doing is saying, I hurt you, assuming responsibility. Number four, assuming regret over your actions. You know, so I feel terrible or I really regret that I took that action, saying those kind of words. Number five, committing not to repeat it and to make restitution as needed. So then if you owe money, returning the money, that type of thing. Thank you, Christine G. Brenda A., your turn. Oh, that was me. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, correct. Okay, sorry about that. Thank you, Brenda. Bev J. Hi, this is Bev. And uh, thank you, Alana. Um, I had a question when you were speaking about step seven, I believe it was. You said something about when uh, we are annoyed or irritated at someone, uh, we could be seeing the same traits in ourselves or we could be seeing opposite traits in ourselves. Could you expound on that a little bit for me? Thank you. Yeah, sure. So... Yeah, it's it's interesting, but it seems to it seems to be, and I've actually read this from, you know, from a psychological perspective as well, that if someone really irritates you and upsets you, you may not realize it. You may have to stop and think deeply. Why do I feel so triggered? And you might realize, oh, I do have that same exact trait. <laughs> it annoys me about myself, so it annoys me when I see it in my child or my coworker or whoever it is. Um, on the other hand, it could be really something opposite. It's so opposite, you don't relate to it and you don't get it and it's, you find it very upsetting. So if you're someone who always shows up at five o'clock, if someone tells you to be there at five and the other person comes at 5.15, you'll feel really annoyed at them for wasting your time and thinking, well, I'm on time. Why can't she be on time? You just won't relate to it and be more annoyed than let's say someone else who also comes kind of late sometimes. They'll be like, oh, okay, I'm late, she's late just kind of easygoing about it. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to ponder it. Thank you so much. Bye. Sure. You, you can bet. feel free to call me. All right. Anyone else with a question for our speaker, Alana? Star 1 to unmute. This will be the final invitation for questions. Yes, my name is Marielle, and I have a question. Hi. Okay, Marielle, hold on. Jody E. Jody E. Esther G. Esther G. Carrie H. Carrie H. Anyone else? Aliyah S. Aliyah S., is that correct? Yes. Okay, very good. Everyone, please mute. We'll start with Mary L. with her question. Hi, Elena. Thank you so much for your qualification. It was excellent, and I learned a lot from it. And thank you, Leah, for being the moderator. I wanted to ask you a question. When the Sabbath comes, do you measure all your food? Uh, hello? 
I don't hear anything. Yeah, I think she got cut off, Marielle. It's her one time I, use. I'll, yeah, I'll just, I, I can answer the question. Can you hear me now? Question. Oh, yeah, we I hear you. I think we get the gist of the question. Uh, yeah, the I will say that on yeah, I will say that on Sabbath and and on my holidays, all my food is weighed and measured. Um, and if you want more information about that, you can reach out to me after the meeting. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the qualification. Sure. It was excellent, and thank you, Leah, for being the moderator. Thank you, Marielle. Thank, thank you so much, Jody E. Your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Alana, for this excellent presentation. My question is about the time that you spend with your sponsees. Do you read the book with them? How much time do you spend per day, per week? Thank you. Yeah, so I don't read word for word with them. I think it's a lovely thing. I think if I was retired and had all the time in the world, maybe I would do that. Um, But in the interest of time and wanting them to get through the steps quickly, I don't do it that way. I do tell them give them an assigned reading and tell them to underline what they relate to or anything that they might have difficulty with or a term that they don't understand they might have to look up. And then when we do our talk about that step, we'll go over all those points. I also use the workbook from um, 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 is it it's it's not Larry, but it's similar to Larry. Help me out here if someone knows what I'm talking about. Lori C. um, Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Um, So we go through that workbook. We make sure that the answers to those questions are there. And I also recommend listening to a special edition on whatever step we're working on. So I know that they're hearing the information, they're reading it, and they're writing about it. And to me as a speech therapist, those are all the main ways to remember something and integrate it. So thank you for the question. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jody. Esther G, your turn. My name is Esther G. Um, thank you, um, Alana, for for everything. It was very inspiring. My question is, um, you mentioned something about um, when you're not allowing people to hurt us. No matter what they say, it shouldn't hurt us. Um, how do you do that? I find that impossible. How do you prevent people when they're really nasty or really abusive, you know, verbally abusive, that it shouldn't hurt? Okay, that's an excellent question because you're right. It, we're, we're not robots, right? So I think what I mean to say is there's going to be an initial pain, just like if someone kicks you, you're going to feel the kick. But then you can pause and think it through and come to a place where it doesn't affect you. So if you're, let's say your self-esteem is strong and you know Like I say certain prayers to myself. So let's say someone insults me. One thing I'll say is, God, help me to believe the truth that my value comes from you and not from what people say or think. And that alone just really gives me this protective feeling of love from God and helps me sort of deflect it. And the truth is that other people should not have a lasting power over you. That's a better way to say it. They might initially, it might hurt. You could take that hurt, go to your room, think it over, realize the truth. Like what lie did they just throw out at you? And what also helps me, Esther, is to realize that if it's something really cruel and not nice, it has to be that they're spiritually sick. A spiritually healthy person 
does not speak cruel and not nice things to someone else. They just don't. So knowing they're spiritually sick and saying that resentment prayer, and sometimes when we say, I want to cheerfully help a friend, the most cheerful help you can give to an abuser is to just not be near them so they can't step on you, right? Because not helping them to let them hit you. So, you know, so definitely don't be a victim and don't stand in the way of their foot kicking you. Um, But just knowing that they're sick and being grateful that you're not sick and that you would never speak that way to someone Um, and saying a prayer and realizing the truth. So these type of things tremendously help. But they should not, I have a great story on that. There was a a wonderful, I learned so much from my patients. I work in downtown Detroit. And there was this little lady in her 90s. And um, she was so cheerful and positive and happy every day. And it turned out her husband was this terrible person who was like stealing her money and her house away from her as she was sick in the nursing home. And uh, so when she told this, I was working with my sister there at the time, and my sister said to her, how come you're so positive and happy, even with what he's doing? And she said, honey, he can take my house, but he cannot steal my joy. I just thought that was unbelievable. And such a lesson for us. You know, people can do what they do to us. But if we know that we're in God's hands and he's taking care of us and he has our best in mind, there's so much we can do to protect ourselves from letting it affect us. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Esther G. Carrie H., your turn. Good morning. Thank you for the call. I'm Carrie H., a compulsive eater. Thank you for the qualification and for sponsoring this meeting. My question is also related to sponsees. Can you talk a little bit about how your your style of sponsoring recovered sponsees? Oh, how I how I work with the ones who are recovered already? Yes. Okay, that's a good question. So my sponsees do with me what I do with my sponsor, which is they send me at night their nightly review, their gratitudes, and their food, and then they tell me um, when they want to talk to me. And it might be once a week. It might be less than once a week. I have some people, like in other countries, where it's hard for us to reach each other. Sometimes we do voice. I do a lot of voice notes from WhatsApp and uh, text, you know, throughout the day. So if it's a simple question, I can voice note or text. And then if it's a conversation, we'll have a conversation. So it's kind of like upkeep and support. And I definitely... You know, I have sponsees that I would call them black belts in recovery. And uh, their recovery is just as strong, if not stronger, than mine. And I'll ask them questions. It's very much a back and forth and a give and take. And we kind of teach each other what we learn as we move along programs. So I learn from them just as much, which is always true for any sponsee we have. So I hope that helps answer. Thank you, Carrie H. Aaliyah S. Your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Aliyah S. in California. My question is that you had mentioned that you had lost every man that was close to you when you were 12. And I was just curious, when you were doing your four steps, did the grief of that come up? And how did you not resent God? Or how did you turn to God when you were 12? And if you did resent God, how did you work through the six months prayer or the resentment in your four step during that grief? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a really good question. 
I think, again, you could look at any situation. It depends what glasses you put on when you're looking at it. I did lose my father at a young age. However, uh, he was so wonderful. He was better for me than, you know, another father could have been who was around for 90 years. He almost died when he was a little boy. So I also like to think God gave him extra years that maybe he would not have had otherwise. And also, you know, my belief is that God kind of keeps an extra eye out for the widows and the orphans. And it was definitely true in my life. So I was able to look at those years and see where God carried us. And there were really miracles. Like I wouldn't even have time to tell you all of them. But let's say we were short $500, there'd be cash on our porch in an envelope $500. You know, we had to go somewhere, there'd be tickets to go there. And it was just crazy how God was using people to get us through. Um, and so I look at all the blessings, you know, and God found me such a wonderful husband. And so I was able to see all the blessings and all the ways he was there for me. And I do have an ultimate belief that there's so many mysteries we won't know. And for me, I feel like I will know them one day in the next world. I won't know them now. And if I could fully understand God, I would be God. You know, it would be kind of frightening to fully understand God because uh, you want a God that's much smarter than you. So I know that he, there's mysteries there. And I, I have belief that everything that happened was ultimately for my best in ways I cannot understand. And the truth is, you know, we like to think we're all going to live forever, but we're not. It's not about this world to me. It's about doing the best you can, leaving the world a better place, you know, leaving your mark on it and then moving on. And uh, I believe there's still infinity. I know people have different beliefs with that, but this world is so short. And um, yeah, you know, as one of my patients talked about her son dying and she couldn't get over the grief and her husband said such wise words to her. He said, honey, now you better stop crying. The good Lord didn't put us here to keep us here. You know, we're all going to go back to him one day. And uh, I just really take comfort in that as well. So, yeah, thank you. And um, I guess I don't resent God. I just believe in him and I love him and I feel like he's looking out for me. And I just can't understand certain things. Thank you, Aliyah S., for your question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Alana, for giving so much of yourself this morning and sharing your remarkable transformation as a result of the 12 steps with all of us today. Again, the share ID for this beautiful presentation, 15,622. That's 156. Two, two for this presentation this morning. We're going to close from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us 
We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.